E.M. Bounds once said, God's plan is to make much of the man, far more of him than of anything else. Men are God's method. The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. You know, when God created this world and everything in it, and then rested on the seventh day, he wasn't sitting back looking at all that he had made, thinking to himself, I wonder how all this is going to turn out. And do you know why that thought never once crossed his mind? Because long before he ever spoke this planet into existence, every moment of time that, that ever would exist had already been authored by him. Think about that. Every sunrise, every sunset, every afternoon storm, every gust of wind that would ever blow and every drop of rain that would ever fall were breathed out by God when he created this earth. How do I know that? Well, because that's what he said. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. You know, that applies to your life as well. Every decision you will ever make, every good day, every bad day, every struggle you will ever face, every tear you will ever shed, he knew before you were. King David wrote, you have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle, are they not in your book? Psalm 56, 8, you understand, every one of your days he knew intimately before you ever lived even one of them. You form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Psalm 139, 13 through 16. Listen, if that doesn't make you shudder in awe and wonder, then you do not know who God really is. And maybe, maybe that's the reason we don't treat the words of God himself as the, the most precious gift we've ever been given, short of our very salvation and his spirit that comes with it. Maybe, uh, maybe that's why we rely on our own wits and our own feelings far more than we should when making decisions in life. I mean, maybe that's why we try to fill our lives with so many things in this world that never could fulfill us because we're not truly awestruck by the one who knitted us together in our mother's womb. I mean, honestly, how is it when we consider the creator of the universe, the the God who the prophet Amos described as he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Amos 4.13. How is it when we consider this God who holds every breath that we will ever breathe in the palm of his hand? Job 12.10. How is it that somehow we're not awestruck by him? How is it that we're not utterly overwhelmed with a reverence and a holy fear in his presence to the point that everything else in our lives becomes secondary to his will for our lives? 
Right? How is it that we live so focused on created things instead of living every single day with a profound and inescapable sense of wonder in the presence of this creator himself, who, by the way, has invited us into his story? It begs the question, how would our lives be different if we truly saw him for who he is? Because look, God does have a plan for this world and you have a part to play in it and yet the degree to which you choose to participate in that plan or not has no bearing whatsoever on whether or not his plan will ultimately be accomplished. It's already been written. We've been reading through it. You understand our decisions do not control God's actions. God is sovereign and nothing we can ever say or do will ever lessen his sovereignty in any way, shape, or form. God's plan for this world is going to be accomplished whether we personally get on board with that plan or not. Your life, however, that's a very different story. You see, because although the ultimate outcome of God's plan for this world cannot be undermined by our failure to acknowledge his rightful place in our lives, our, our failure to acknowledge him in all of our ways, as his word says, our daily lives, on the other hand, they are profoundly affected by our failure to acknowledge him in all of our ways. In fact, do you know the greatest threat to God's plan being realized in your life is your plan? The greatest threat to God's plan being realized in your life is your plan. Proverbs 3, 6 says, In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. See, there's a cause and effect on our lives personally when we recognize who God actually is and respond accordingly in all of our ways. And so what exactly does it mean to respond accordingly to God? Well, it means we revere him with a sense of awestruck wonder in everything we say and do to the point that we're so concerned with God's will for our lives above everything else that it consumes our thoughts and our speech and our decisions and our relationships and above all, our commitment to him and to his people. And look, anything less than that, all we're doing is selling ourselves short of everything that God is offering us, and yet what we find in this story as we continue our sermon series working our way through the book of Revelation is God very effectively accomplishing his will for his people through the most unlikely and epically tragic circumstances, which just emphasizes the point that God is going to accomplish his will for this world one way or the other, but listen, how you experience that is largely up to you. Because when you choose your own ways over his, your life is at odds with God's will. And when your life is at odds with God's will, which one of those two do you think is going to suffer? Here's a hint. It's not God's will. You see, if you want your life to change, if you need your life to change today, then ask yourself and be honest with the answer. Am I ready to pursue what God is doing in this world and in me more than I pursue anything else in my life? Am I ready to pursue his plan, if need be, even at the expense of my own? Are you ready for God to do something new in your life through the most unlikely and maybe even unwelcome circumstances in your life? Because that is often exactly how he moves us from where we are to where we need to be. And listen, if the answer is no, if you're not ready to submit your will, your plan under his, then you're not ready for the change that you're looking for in your life because the greatest threat to God's plan being realized in your life is your plan. 
So let's pick the story up where we left off last time and, and see if we're truly ready for what he says is coming. Revelation 19, we'll begin with the first five verses. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just, for he's judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. So uh, chapter 19, by the way, is the text from which the Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah was composed. And so in the opening of this chapter, we find the original Hallelujah Chorus being sung by God's people in response to the command in Revelation 18.20. You'll remember from last time, uh, which says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. And so this worship service here in chapter 19 is the response to that in contrast with that last chapter, which again, you'll remember, is a solemn funeral dirge to be sung by the kings and the merchants and the seafarers whose economic empires will collapse with the fall of Babylon, the, the, the one world government and the Antichrist and his new world system that will dominate the last days that John sees in his vision, just as Rome did in his own day. And so the heavenly chorus sings hallelujah, 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 three times in the first four verses and then once again in the, in the sixth verse as we'll see, which is a sacred word Right, we, we throw that word around loosely. Hallelujah is a sacred word borrowed from the Hebrew that is found nowhere else in the whole New Testament. It's derived from two Hebrew words, halal and yah, literally means praise Yahweh. It's often translated as praise the Lord. In fact, uh, the phrase uh, praise our God in verse five is another Greek way of expressing the Hebrew words hallelujah. And yet again, in the entirety of the New Testament, that word is only found here in Revelation 19 because it's a sacred expression of praise and worship reserved for these last days when he returns. The 12th century Italian theologian and monk Anselm of Canterbury considered the word to be angelic. He said, I'm quoting, it cannot be fully reproduced in any language of man. St. Augustine said, the feeling and saying of it embodies all the blessedness of heaven. So this is the sacred praise and worship of God for who he is, and more specifically, in this case, for what he's just done. And yet it's not just the multitude in heaven who are commanded to praise him for his mighty works, because in verse 5, from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. Now listen, that isn't a command specifically to those who are in heaven, because as we've seen, they're already praising him. Now, this is directed to the remnant of the church on earth who are being invited to join in and praise God along with the host of heaven for what he's just accomplished in heaven and on the earth. And as we'll see, they respond accordingly by joining in along with those who are in heaven with their own hallelujah, which is in great contrast with the rest of the people on the earth who we've seen over and over and over again in previous chapters rejecting Jesus Christ and refusing to repent of their sin despite being given every opportunity to do so all along the way as the wrath of God is being poured out on the earth. And so what's the difference 
between those who are prepared for what is coming and those who are not. Well, the voice from the throne spells it out in verse five. Praise our God, all you, his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Okay, the difference between those who are able to endure what is coming to this earth in the last days described here and those who are not is what you fear, revere, respect more than anything else. The difference between the people who choose to worship and follow Jesus Christ rather than the Antichrist and his one world system is the fact that the former fear the wrath of God more than they fear the wrath of men. That's the difference between those who are prepared for what is coming and those who are not. It's what you fear, revere, respect the most, God or man, which begs the question, are you ready for what is coming? If our days are to be the last described by uh, John in this book, are you ready? Are you prepared for this way of life to end and a new one to begin? And if not, are you willing to make the changes necessary in your life until you are? What do you fear, revere, respect the most, God or man? Because we're expressly commanded to fear and worship God, and yet I think all too often we fear, revere, respect this world and the ways of this world more than we do God and what he's planning for this world. Right? I mean, when we think about fear, probably uh, we think about all different things because fear for most people is it's different for everyone, right? So some fear... Uh, for them, fear is standing on top of a tall building looking all the way down. For some, it's needles when they're at the doctor's office, which always seem bigger and longer than they actually are. Uh, for some people, they fear loss, losing everything they've worked for or losing their financial stability, losing their health or losing a loved one. And then, of course, uh, there are all the old standbys, the creepy crawly things, snakes and spiders uh, at night. And some people are afraid of small enclosed Spaces, that'd be me, can't stand it. Some people are afraid of the dark, flying on airplanes, the dentist, I mean, pick your poison, right? The, the point is, there are a lot of different things that we think of when we think of fear. And yet one of the things that most of us probably do not think about most of the time when we think about fear is God. The Bible says that God is love, right? That he's, he's our refuge, he's our strength, he's our peace, he's our dwelling place, he's light and life and salvation. And for those of us who know him, we know that we're saved by a grace that we do not deserve and cannot earn. And so it seems unnatural to associate that same God with fear. Yet Hebrews 10.31 says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Jesus himself said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. That would be men. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell, Matthew 10, 28. The fact is, the Bible talks about fearing God well over a hundred times. And of course, when we talk about the fear of God in church, we usually talk about things like reverence and respect, which isn't wrong. But the truth is, when the fear of God is talked about in Scripture, uh, different words in the ancient languages are used in different places to describe that fear, which means different things. Even the same words in different places can carry different meanings. The fact is, the, the ancient biblical languages are far more nuanced than our modern English. So yes, 
When the Bible teaches us to fear God, it is referring to a profound awe and reverence and respect, but in a very real and very visceral way. At times, it is also referring to people being utterly terrified, dreadfully afraid. And the difference between those two types of fear of God for us lies in the kind of relationship that we have with Him. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 says, let us offer to God acceptable worship, which by the way means there must be worship that is not acceptable. That's another sermon for another day. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That's addressing believers and followers of Christ. We're to worship him with reverence and awe. And by the way, both of those words, reverence and awe, in that verse in the ancient Greek can also be translated as fear. And so we as believers are to worship him with reverence and awe because he is a consuming fire, which makes a lot of sense if you think about it. Just consider how we approach fire, right? We, we uh, certainly fear fire for what it's capable of if we don't maintain a proper relationship to it, right? Experienced negatively, fire can hurt. It can burn. It can destroy. It can take away life. For some, fire is terrible, right? Experienced positively, fire keeps us warm. It, it cooks our food. It fuels our transportation. It lights our birthday cakes, right? I mean, fire makes s'mores possible. Come on. It, it makes camping fun. It sustains life. Fire is wonderful. You understand fire is terrible. And fire is wonderful, depending upon your relationship to it. So what does a healthy fear of fire look like? It looks like dread for what it can do when your relationship to it is negative. And at the same time, it looks like reverence and awe and wonder and respect and appreciation for and dependence upon it when your relationship to it is positive. Right? If your relationship to God is adversarial, if you're not a follower of Christ, then when you encounter him outside of repentance, you would be right to be dreadfully afraid. However, if your relationship to God is based on his redeeming love and grace through faith in him, then you may well still be, by the way, dreadfully afraid when you encounter him, depending on the encounter. When the Apostle John, for instance, Jesus' favorite, when he encountered Jesus in his glorified state, John wrote that he fell at his feet as though dead. In other words, astounded and terrified by the overwhelming reality of being in the very presence of Jesus Christ in all of his power and glory, John blacks out. He passes out on the ground before Jesus like he's dead. And yet because John was a follower of Christ, because he loved Jesus, he says that Jesus laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I'm the first and the last, Revelation 1.17. And so even though John Experience that same dread and terror before the Lord that so many people who don't know him have. Jesus says, hey, John, it's okay. You don't have to fear me like, like that because you're one of mine. It's really great news for all of us who are following Jesus Christ. However, that in, look, in no way, shape, or form does that excuse or exempt us from the other kind of fear of God described in the Bible, the kind where we're so astounded by him, so awestruck just to be in his presence, so reverent before him that he becomes the focus of all our attention. He becomes the source of all our joy. He's at the center of every decision. He's the purpose behind all that we do. He's the motivation that gets us up in the morning and the drive that keeps us going throughout each day. He's the sum total of everything that we long for in life. In short, we become utterly consumed by him, like a fire. 
That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and to fear God. We revere him so much that everything else in our lives pales in his presence. You see, our problem today is not that we don't love God enough. Our problem is that we don't fear God enough. Because if we were truly seized by an awestruck wonder every time we encountered Jesus Christ, number one, we wouldn't fear anything else. And number two, we would love him more than everything else. Honestly, we should be asking ourselves, do we really fear God today? Are we as consumed by him as Peter was, who did not consider himself worthy to die as Jesus had? And so according to the early church fathers, upon his crucifixion, Peter announced, it is time for you, Peter, to surrender your body to those who are taking it. Take it then, whose duty it is. I request you, therefore, executioners, to crucify me head downwards in this way and no other. And then while hanging on that cross upside down, he gave a final speech and then died. Do we really fear God? Are we as consumed by Christ like Ignatius of Antioch was, the first century church father, who was taken to the Colosseum where Christians were strapped to red-hot iron chairs and made to run between gauntlets of wild animals while their skin was burning alive and the animals would tear at the person until they were brought down by those animals and eaten. Knowing this was to be his fate, Ignatius, right before that moment, wrote these final words. He said, and I'm quoting, it is not that I want merely to be called a Christian, but actually to be one. Yes, if I prove to be one, then I can have the name. What a thrill I shall have from the wild beasts that are ready for me. I hope they will make short work of me. I shall coax them on to eat me up at once and not to hold off as sometimes happens through fear. And if they're reluctant, I shall force them to it. Forgive me. I know what is good for me. Now is the moment I'm beginning to be a disciple. May nothing seen or unseen begrudge me making my way to Jesus Christ come fire, cross, battling with wild beasts, wrenching of bones, mangling of limbs, crushing of my whole body, cruel tortures of the devil. Only let me get to Jesus Christ. Do we really fear God? Do we revere him the way Queen Esther did, who knowing she would probably die for approaching the king without being summoned first, but decided to anyway in order to save God's people, she simply said, if I perish, I perish. Do we really fear God? These were men and women who had such a reverent and awestruck, healthy fear of God that they feared nothing else. Do we fear him like that? Do we get up every single day thinking, if today is my last, may every breath that remains within me bring glory to his name. Only let me get to Jesus. Do we really fear God? Are we awestruck in his presence or are we intimidated by this world? Do we really fear him? Are we willing to give everything to him? Are we holding on to everything that we can? Do we really fear God? We're so captivated by him that no temptation in this world could even begin to captivate us. Do we really fear God? Or are we so fearful of this world, of what failure according to this world looks like, that we concern ourselves far more with what this world is up to than we are with what God is up to? See, that's the difference between those who are ready for what is coming and those who are not. Because look, we all have plans for our lives, we do. And fear, reverence, respect for what this world can do for us or to us for following those plans, that's always a factor in our plans. We're, we're careful to consider the consequences, both good and bad, that come from this world by taking a certain path in life. 
But how often do you consider the consequences, both good and bad, that may come from God by following your own path in this life? Because I'm telling you, the greatest threat to God's plan being realized in your life is your plan. And it may well be the difference between whether or not you're ready for what his word says is coming. Charles Spurgeon once said, be ready, servant of Christ, for your master comes suddenly when an ungodly world least expects him. Let's finish our story for today. Verse six to the end of the chapter. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and the riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So in the remainder of, of the chapter, John is describing two feasts. The first is the marriage supper of the Lamb, where the bride of Christ, that is the church, is joined in a union compared to a marriage with Jesus Christ himself who shows up as the bridegroom. And the angel said to John, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of lamb. That would have made perfect sense to the first century Jewish reader. This is a celebration without equal. In Jewish culture, the marriage supper between a bride and groom was widely understood as the greatest feast, the best party, the grandest celebration of them all, a time of unequal joy. In fact, uh, according to rabbinical teaching, obedience to the commandments was suspended during a wedding celebration if obeying a commandment might in any way lessen the joy of the occasion. That's how big of a deal the Jewish people considered a marriage supper to be. And of course, this particular marriage supper between Jesus and his church will be the greatest of them all, which Jesus 
himself eagerly anticipated in Matthew 26, 29. He spoke longingly of the day that he would drink of the fruit of the vine again with his disciples in his father's kingdom, speaking of this very same day. And yet there is a second feast described here as well. Very different, one where Jesus shows up not as a bridegroom, but as a warrior on a white horse who's called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Verse 17, then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings. The flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and the riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. It's a very different kind of feast. Although it may be hard for some to reconcile these two very different feasts ordained by the very same God, Robert Mounts points out, any view of God that eliminates judgment and his hatred of sin in the interest of an emasculated doctrine of sentimental affection finds no support in the strong and virile realism of the apocalypse. David Gusick puts it this way, this is a Jesus we can't control. Here we see Jesus as someone who demands not only our attention, but also our submission. You see, Jesus is coming back, and yet how you experience his return largely depends on whether or not you're ready for him to come. Are you ready for who is coming? Well, I don't know. How can I be ready for the return of Christ? Verse seven, his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Okay, when you belong to Christ, you're no longer spiritually subject to the kingdoms of this world because you're now a part of a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, which also means you're no longer subject against your will to the ruler of this world because you're now subject to a new ruler, a new king, Jesus Christ, who has set you free from the law of sin and death. The Apostle Paul said, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, Romans 8, 2. Does that mean then that as Christians we now live in a kingdom without laws? Well, of course not. Paul says that as a follower of Christ, we're now under the law of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9, 21. So what is the law of Christ? Well, when Jesus was asked, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law, he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Matthew 22, 36 through 40. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I wonder, have you ever taken the time to actually allow the weight of that statement by Jesus, the implication of what he's saying here, for your life today, have you ever allowed that to really sink in? Honestly, we should all make room for a significant amount of time of space in our lives just to meditate on that one definitive statement by Jesus and what it means for us today. All of the law, all of it, all of the prophets, everything that God's people then were taught and governed by, all of the law and the prophets, it all boils down to God's people today loving God and loving each other. This is the law of Christ that we as followers of Christ are subject to. You understand, it's, it's not the great suggestion. 
It's the great commandment, and it is, in fact, the law. It's the law that we're subject by God to live our lives as believers and followers of Jesus Christ by. It's why the Apostle Paul said, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill what? The law of Christ, Galatians 6.2. Because loving God and loving each other is the law. That is to rule our very lives. Now, philosophically, for Christians at least, nobody really has a problem with that because that all sounds great. Where the problem for many of us comes in is, is in the understanding of exactly what Jesus meant when he said that. Because in our culture today, when someone says they love you, often what they're actually saying without even realizing it is, I love the way that you make me feel. Which is something entirely different than actually loving someone. Okay? The reason that matters is because when you no longer make that person feel the same way, well, then they're free to no longer love you, which means in their mind, they're free to leave that relationship, to write you off because you no longer make them feel the way they want you to. That's how we end up with broken marriages and broken friendships and broken families and broken churches and a broken society because what we call love isn't actually love at all. Because real love isn't based on feelings. Real love is based on identity, which means if someone truly loves you, they've made a commitment to you based on who you are, not on how you make them feel. Okay, look, God loves you because of who you are, not because of how you, you make him feel. Ultimately, his love for us is actually based on who he is, but the point is true love, real love, is based on identity. God love, uh, loves us because we are his creation, Meant to bring him glory. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Ephesians 2.10. He loves us simply because of who we are. We are his creation. For God so loved the world. His creation. John 3.16. That's why Jesus was able to love those who were beating him, uh, spitting on him, mocking him, and killing him. Because his love for us is not based on how we make him feel. Otherwise, I mean, God help us all. You understand, and this goes both ways. When we say we love God, it cannot be based on how he makes us feel. No, it must be based on who he is. Our creator, our hope, our light, our truth, our love, our savior, our king, our love for God must be based on who he is, not on how he makes us feel. Because, uh, first of all, God never promised or intended to always make us feel good. In fact, he often he'll make us feel bad intentionally precisely because he loves us and wants us to grow and mature and gain wisdom, which means discipline, which never feels good. And so true love is based on identity, not on feelings. Now, to take it one step further, to understand how that true love is then expressed in our lives, we have to look to the cross. True love is laying down your own life. For God and for others, simply because of who they are, not because of what they do for you or how they make you feel. Jesus gave his life for those who hated him, for those who were killing him. That's what true love looks like. You see, so when Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, it's the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Before we get too excited about an easy gospel that requires little from us under this new law except to have loving feelings toward Jesus and other people, it's really important that we first understand when Jesus said the greatest commandment that all the law and prophets are fulfilled in is to love God and to love each other. It's vital that we understand what he was actually saying. He was saying the greatest commandment, the law that you as Christians are bound to live your entire life by day by day, the law that is to rule 
over your life. That law says you must give up your life for God and for other people, regardless of how they make you feel. You remember what we just read? What was the pure linen they were clothed in? Their righteous deeds. This is what he's talking about. You must give up your life for God and for other people regardless of how they make you feel. That's why Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends, John 15, 13. This is the law of Christ that we as followers of Christ are now living under. This is the law that we live by, that we're governed by, a law that says we must give up our own lives for the sake of Christ and for the sake of each other. And we are to live out that law under the reign of no other king but Jesus Christ himself. So why then? If we're members of this new kingdom, living under this new law, subject to the rule of a new king, why do so many Christians still live as if we belong to the kingdoms of this world, under the old law, subjecting ourselves to the ruler of this world? It's what the people of God have been doing from the beginning, by the way. The Israelites, after being freed from the yoke of slavery, continued by their own choosing to submit themselves to the rulers of this world, rulers who gladly enslaved them, as we see throughout much of the Old Testament. And then in the first century church, after receiving Christ, Paul had to instruct the Christians at Galatia, having been freed from the yoke of slavery uh, of sin, to stop resubmitting themselves to it. That's in Galatians 5.1. And here in Revelation, in the letters to the churches, to professing Christians, he says, stop submitting yourself to the ways of this world. And of course, that same question can and should be asked of us today. If we say we're followers of Jesus, knowing that we belong to no other king but Jesus, why do we sometimes still submit ourselves to the ruler of this world who gladly enslaves us to all of the other things that we allow in our lives to rule over us? Remember, we talked about this two weeks ago. We live in prisons that we build around ourselves. Why do we subject ourselves to the law of sin and death rather than the law of Christ? Why do we subject ourselves to the love of this world which is based on nothing more than fleeting feelings when we've been given the freedom to give and receive the love of Christ which is based on the identity of Christ himself? Why do we long for something other than that which God has already provided for us? It's as if we're, we're hoping for something more than what he's offering so we search for something greater than God in a world that he created. This is the difference between being ready for who is coming and not. What are you subjecting yourself to? I'm not just talking about believing in something. I'm talking about what are you following? It's as if we're hoping for something more than what he's offering. So we search for something greater than God in a world that he created. It doesn't make any sense. Why search for something created to fulfill us when the creator is offering us himself? As a bridegroom offers himself to his bride. You see, at the end of the day, if you distill it all down, it's a matter of whose plan you're choosing to follow, God's or your own. And it matters because for most of us, the greatest threat to God's plan being realized in your life is your plan. That's why he calls us to follow him instead of this world. Because his plan for your life is what prepares you for what is coming and for who is coming. The question is, are you ready? Let's pray.